Shalom Aleichem, Jim. Shalom, Rabbi. Manashma. Baruch Hashem. Are you exhausted? I understand that you just got back from a busy weekend. Yeah, we were, Carol and I were in Dallas, Texas, and we got invited to uh, a conference, a weekend conference uh, for an organization, uh, an Israel-based organization called Benenu. And Benenu was started by a young woman who was uh, the daughter of a Christian minister, and she converted to Judaism. And uh, much like the guest, one of the guest speakers at the conference, uh, a good friend of ours, uh, Rabbi Tovia Singer, uh, they're, 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 you know, uh, what would I say, their mission statement, if you will, are kind of similar. He does outreach Judaism, and of course she also is, is very much into uh, taking on the missionaries, and we know that's a big problem in Israel right now. Um, and I was invited, <clears throat> excuse me, I was invited to speak, <clears throat> okay, pardon me, I was invited to speak and show a, a short documentary that I made about uh, my mentor and my beloved uh, teacher, the late Vendel Jones of Blessed Memory, and his widow, Anita, was there, and they were, we were both invited because uh, the beginning of the conference uh, actually t- began Motzei Shabbat. That is, for those who aren't familiar, it was when Shabbat was over on Saturday night. And uh, that was because we had Jewish guests and, of course, Tovia. You know, we, we wanted to, you know, uh, watch uh, Bishomar Shabbat. But anyway, after Shabbat was over, we began the program. And Anita spoke to everyone about, about Vendel's legacy. And then I showed a film called uh, Door of Hope, which was... The reason we did it, uh, Rabbi, was because so many of the people who um, have come out of uh, their other religious ideas and misconceptions and lives, uh, they basically have uh, discovered that they have a relationship with Hashem in that they don't have to convert if they don't want to. If they want to, amen. If they don't want to, amen. Again, they have a relationship through the Sheva Mitzvot, B'nai Noach, the seven laws of Noah, which, of course, are given to all humanity. This is, you know, uh, I, for anybody who's listening for the first time, the Jews, as, as the priesthood of the planet, have a, a much larger uh, application of, of laws because they are a priesthood. And then the rest of us have seven laws, and God, uh, you know, we can have a relationship, and as one of our favorite commentators, the Rambam, uh, once uh, wrote in his Mishnah Torah that uh, it's almost embarrassing to say this. He said that a, a non-Jew who keeps the seven laws and does so for the, through the fear of heaven, through the fear of Hashem, they are unequal with the, the high priest, the Kohen Gadol. And, and as uh, uh, Tovia, I think, said at the conference, uh, it, it's amazing because many of us non-Jews who were there because we embraced the tenets of Torah and the one true God of Israel and the role that we recognize that has been given to the Jewish people, it's amazing because nobody told us that we had to do any of this, you know, that we, we came to this. And so... I have to say, I have to brag a little bit. Go ahead. I, they were. Uh, I was so. <clears throat> I was so uh, encouraged. We. I, we. I didn't expect that we ran into so many fans of the podcast, and they. They. Uh, all of them sent their regards to you, 
and um, they they basically were so appreciative of of your teachings, and they they uh, they enjoy the conversations that you and I have, and it was uh, it was just it was in, encouraging in many respects. For the whole weekend was was lovely, meeting these families, you know, that have come to to embrace the God of Israel. It's amazing. And I also I also contributed a little part to your um, your video uh, testimonial about Vendel. Yeah, the the uh, I I had um, I, I shot a, a lot of my last trip to Israel. Um, I shot a, a, a lot of interviews, and it's for uh, it's for a show, actually for a, a, a docu series that uh, the people that I'm working with who are carrying on the legacy and archaeology of uh, of Vendel, and the uh, the uh, group is called Project Qumran, and uh, it's com- it's comprised partly of myself and, and another gentleman who we all dug. We excavated with Vendel, and we, and and I became a Noahide because of Vendel through those excavations. And the other gentleman found out he was Jewish, that he didn't realize through our working with Vendel, and he became a Balshuva. So we continue. It's called Project Qumran, and in the the uh, the documentary that I made, it was about a forty-five minute documentary. I uh, sort of made it a special cut. A special edit for the uh, for the conference, because I wanted to I wanted to show both Jews and non-Jews who had been impacted by Vendel, and the fact that that uh, like when I met Vendel in broadcast radio years ago, when I invited him to come one of our on one of our talk shows there in Dallas when I was in talk radio, um, even though Vendel was basically a biblical archaeologist, it was impossible for him to open up his mouth and talk about his work without Torah coming out. And it's, it's one of those things that you discover when you learn Torah that, you know, you can't speak about history or archaeology or other disciplines if you understand how much God is within. You know, God is always there. He's hidden from us, but yet, you know, He's not in that, that strange kind of paradox that, that we see Him. And so um, I, I have to say that... Uh, Every every one of the people that I interviewed, including you, Rabbi, you you said such wonderful things that I wanted. If I'd put every interview, including yours, if I'd put the entire interview, the, the documentary would have been you know a good four or five hours long, because it was really hard to edit. Because you and I and I hope that we can soon make it available to see. It's a work in progress because it's it's for a mini series that we're producing. The BBC has even approached us about it. And so, um, anyway, so would I you say that the, the conference was basically a test, like a um, uh, a memorial to to Vendel or a oh, tribute the, to Vendel's memory? Saturday night, is that, is that what the main the thing first, was? The opening night, the the even those that signed up, there was a a, a sort of um, a digital flyer that sent out through the emails with Vendel's picture on it, and it was a, it was a night to remember Vendel Jones, and and his influence. And I was even, you know, talking to you, even even though we've known each other, I don't know how many years now, you and everyone else, uh, Jews and non-Jews alike, I was hearing stories that I'd never heard before, and I was so, uh, in a good way, shocked at, at, at the influence that he had on, for instance, you and, and other, and archaeologists, 
And I, I think it's, it's an amazing testimony. And you were so eloquent in, in, in your own description of how, I mean, you go back to the time that when they found the, uh, the katorah, the incense. And we, mm. have, we, <laughs> we, we have these lovely images of you, a very young rabbi there <laughs> out at Qumran with, with Vendel. A lot of water under that bridge. Yeah, really. So uh, anyway, it was a lovely, lovely time. And I look forward to, to it, God willing, happening again you know, in the future. So I think you mentioned that you called your you called this documentary a door of hope. Yes, yeah. And that was the name of of, of B- Vendel's book that he wrote about his search for the Copper Scroll. And I, I think it's so apropos. Petach Tikva is the name of a city in Israel that has a, that has a, a lot of meaning. But the thing is, Vendel really did open a door of hope to so many people. I'm glad that this conference took place because the new generation doesn't know who, who he was, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's funny, somebody mentioned to me that they, uh, a Noahide that could have gone to that conference and said, instead, he went to, to see the newest Indiana Jones movie. Oh, and he was ta- I think he was I know talking what you're talking about. talking about. How, <laughs> yeah, okay. But anyway, so he's yeah. talking about how, how um, this is the real, uh, the inspiration for, for uh, Indiana Jones, and I, and I know that that's not so simple. Yes, no. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this it's the stuff of um, of um, how should we say? Um, it's almost legend uh, in a way. It's le- it's legendary, <laughs> right? Whether whether or not he was the inspiration to for for um, Indiana Jones, he was truly a biblical archaeologist, and yeah. his name was Jones, and he was looking for the lost treasures, yes, which he found some of. And but the thing is that. Um, and I think I mentioned this also in the in, in the interview that that I did for that film. I think that it's it's his biblical archaeology that maybe is is better known to a lot of people than than his um, role as being a, a facilitator for a new spiritual revolution of consciousness of Torah in this generation. But this is how Hashem worked it. You know, mm-hmm. Hashem worked it in such a way that, like you said, like he he was working in that field and he brought forth all of these Torah ideas. But again, the the, the phrase "door of hope" is so apropos because today there are so many people in the world. And this is what Jerusalem Lights is all about. You mentioned, you know, my relationship with him. You know, I feel a tremendous affinity with him because he was this massive, bigger-than-life, really, truly like a legendary um, figure that just, he, he just had this incredible uh, power of um, faith mm-hmm. and, um, you know, to do what he did and to come from, from his background and, to, and not only to embrace Torah, but to become such a master educator and to bring so many people out of, out of uh, idolatry, it, it, it's absolutely staggering. And he, really, it's like, it's like being... A a, um, a figure of biblical proportions in the in the in these generations, and so it's so important that people understand that because today there are so many people that uh, are are not, they don't know what to do with themselves. I mean, and again, the, the whole concept of you and I in this that we made this organization, Jerusalem Lights. Torah for everyone. Its its complete purpose is to share authentic Torah teachings with every person, and to encourage every person to, to deepen their relationship with Hashem, to believe in Hashem, to study Torah, to find themselves in Torah, Jew and Gentile alike. That's what we're all about. That's why we I exist. Yeah. And the thing is that there are so many people that they don't know what to do with themselves when they come out of the trappings of their former faith. And they feel that, you know, they, they understand that there's only one God. They understand who he is. They understand his gift of Torah to the whole world. 
and they don't know how to navigate that. They don't know how to proceed. And, and like you said, some people feel that they want to convert or that they can't convert and that they don't know what they should do and they don't know what their relationship with Hashem and with the Jewish people should be. And this is what, what I'm spending all of my, my time and resources and energy trying to, to help, help people towards that goal. And again, because of the world that we live in today, because of the internet, people are able to find themselves, people are able to fellowship and, and, and have community and, and understand that they're not the only people in the world, but it's a world a new world for so many people, and it's and and whoever goes through that door, in this generation is is going to somehow feel the influence that that Vendel had mm-hmm. on all of the, on all of the people coming from that world and discovering who Hashem is. Yeah, somebody told me the other day. I think maybe it was at the conference. They said, uh, and you know, you you have to know if for those who may be catching us the first time that, you know, the Noahide idea is is officially global right now i mean it's i remember just a few years ago i was in Jerusalem and i was at the house of a, a rabbi friend of ours and he had set up skype and he asked me to address a class of noahides in moscow you know in russia and um when when i when i began to work with vendel um you know, we they were. It, it seemed to be very few. But I, I want to ask uh, any of our our viewers that doubt this: just Google the word uh, or the phrase "Bnei Noach" or the word "Noachide," and the number of hits that come up on Google are just staggering compared to when I was first introduced to this concept in the '90s. And the thing that I'm I, I want to do, I'm working on it. Maybe for, I may do it for our, our blog is the fact that um, I wasn't quite sure what uh, Shannon wanted me to talk about. I know she wanted me to, she, they asked me to do the, to, the, the video, and I'd already been working on it anyway for this docu-series that we're, that we're planning based on our <clears throat> current digs that carry on what, you know, the work of Vendel. And I, I, uh, I wanted to show that because some people who are, who are just coming into this idea, some of the misinformed say, well, this is some modern idea that the rabbis came up with, but it's not. And, and I, I began to put together data, and I'll share a lot of it later on, but just a, a little hint, like, for instance, you know, you can find uh, a Noahide in the Tanakh who is cured of leprosy, and it doesn't say that he, he was a, a Gertzedek, that he converted. He's a general. I've forgotten his name already, but he was an Aramean general. And uh, I found, a, I found a, an organization called uh, The Jews in Rome, and it's a history online of the Jews in Rome. And it speaks of uh, the, the synagogues all over the ancient world, and one in, in what used to be called Sardis in, in Turkey, and how they found an inscription on this ancient synagogue that... Um, List all the founders of synagogue, and then it lists the the God fearers that are also part of the community. And that's how they were always referred to in in, in ancient history, right? And even in the writings of of, um, of Cicero and and some of the ancient writers, they're mm-hmm. they're referred to that way. That's how they were always known. And and the concept is more than ancient. The concept is an integral part of Torah tradition. Yes. Yeah. That Hashem made a covenant with all of humanity before he made the covenant with the children of Israel. Exactly. But at Sinai, when the Torah was given, 
the cov- the original covenant with all humanity based on the on the seven universal laws was kind of like ratified because it became like a manifestation of the oral torah because the whole th- idea is that it's it's basically um, a revelation of Moshe. Moshe gives it over to the whole world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people need to know out there. People who are seeking, you know, the, the answers to what their life is all about, because everybody struggles with life. That's that's, you know, that's the way it's. That's the paradigm that we're living, and the idea is is that is that you know, it's not a cult. It's not a religion. Everybody out there listening right now who is not a Jew. You are a Noahide. You are yours. You are a son and daughter of Noah after the flood. And, but it's and, more than. But that's looking at it from like as a biological cl- um, classification. Well, but I wasn't so, quite. Yeah, whoever is not a descendant yeah. of Abraham is a descendant of Noah. We're all yeah. descendants of Adam. But the th- but the right. thing is, a conscious acceptance. That's what I'm talking the, about. Right. Yeah. In other words, the, the, you're talking about the, the. Yeah, everybody is a Noahide, but there is an idea. That which is again what the whole idea of what Jerusalem Lights is all about in, in this phrase Torah for everyone is that every single human being has a direct relationship with the one Creator God. Amen. How Amen. is that manifest? How what is the path to holiness? What is the path to to completion? What is the path to spiritual fulfillment? What is the path to serving Hashem? That's what we have to learn. That's exactly what it's all about because it's different for different people, but it's all within the framework of Torah and and its commandments. That well, that that's that was my ultimate point. I was going to make is the fact that that everyone listening to the show right now that that if you're if you're not Jewish, you already have. You, there's a covenant that you have with with the Creator right now that that is your legacy, and all you have to do is is just you know sort of. Uh, you know, turn on the button and begin to actualize it if you want to. You've got a relationship. God's waiting right there to make a to to to. Uh, you See, know. As soon as you introduce the word religion into any conversation, right, everything goes funky and everybody gets nervous. Exactly. And, it's and not it's a, a problem. It's, it look, and you know, my position is even a problem when you discuss Judaism because it's not a religion. It's a, the way of life of a people. It's a complete, mm-hmm. comprehensive, holistic covenantal experience and it's the same thing for the non-Jews so sometimes people they say oh is, is this Noahide thing like uh, Judaism for Gentiles or is it like or, and people say oh so it's the first uh, world's original religion neither are true it's a path it's a way it's a way of life because the whole idea of of the word religion and, the, and again the reason why it irks me so much is because Every other religion other than Judaism is man-made. That's a fact. Whereas Hashem gave Israel the Torah at Mount Sinai, God himself came, as it were, and, and, and brought his word to mankind through Israel at Mount Sinai. And, and so that's why certainly to, to you know, the, the Jewish experience, as it were, the word religion doesn't apply because it's not, it's not something that is an ism, you know. And, and so too, the ancient covenant of the Sheva Mitzvot and, and all of their tributaries and everything that is, uh, you know, like um, part of, and, and a component of that that can be embraced by the non-Jewish world is the, is Torah. It's yeah. all Torah. Yeah. And I, I, it's like I always tell people, you know, look, you, all God requires of you is seven. And if you could, and we have these sort of 30-odd permutations that come out of that. People like to characterize the scholars often uh, that each of the seven mitzvot are, are, you know, chapter headings. And that's fine. You know what? But Like an outline. Like an outline. But still, like outline. if you could, if anyone can simply keep those seven, you're squared away with Hashem. 
you know? Right. And then, and the rest is commentary in that, in that that's how Torah works. It's, it's so deep. Yes, there are seven basic laws. They seem to be very easy. Not to kill, not to blaspheme, not to com- commit sexual sins, you know, uh, not, to wor- not to worship idols, uh, and to have a, a, a respect for, for, for life, you know, not to, not to uh, eat the limb of a living animal, which yeah. stands for like a whole ecological balance. But they're not, they're not only, you know, on that level, because mm-hmm. the truth is that they, there are so many manifestations in our modern world of, of how, of what idolatry really is. You know, there, there's so many levels of meaning. And, that, and that's where, again, Torah, Torah study comes in, into play. And, and again, and you, you always mention this, you know, like the, the Jews are the Kohanim of the world, they're, the, they're the, the priests or the ministers to the world. That's true. Hashem said that at Sinai. He said, you'll be a, a holy nation a, king, a kingdom of priests, meaning that you have a job to do to bring to bring this message to the world. And and there were periods in history when the Jewish people were more, if you'll pardon the expression, evangelical. They were more mm-hmm. they were more outward going. You know, they were more. Um, um, the door was proactive. open. The door was open. Proactive. And, bring, yeah, but, and, proactive. and then because of because of the difficult relationship with with the other nations, and because. Of history, uh, you know, the Jewish people became more insular, which is not what we were supposed to be. We're supposed to be bringing this message to the whole mm. world. That's what the, the you know, when God said to to Isaiah, "I made you a prophet to the nations." To Jeremiah, the, the, the Zechariah, all all of their prophecies are are to the whole world, and so it's such a a um, myopic kind of like misunderstanding mm-hmm. for people to label Torah as. Something that is, you know, it's it's only for the Jewish people, and then, well, yeah, there's this kind of sidebar, you know, for the Noahides. The truth is, the Torah is so completely universal, and yes, obviously, the 613 commandments. So many of them are very, very specific to Israel, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that their message or that their or that their, you know, the principle of what it brings to the world isn't something that the others, other nations can learn from. And for example, like so, now we're starting a whole new Zoom series. You know, we we I've since Jerusalem Lights was founded about three three and a half years ago, we've we've had hundreds of Zoom classes because it started just around the time of COVID, and so people were really getting into Zoom. We had hundreds of classes, and after like a whole series about um, the lives of the forefathers, and then we had other classes in the Holy Temple and in the festivals. We completed the whole book of First Samuel and Second Samuel, and then we just had a, a really beautiful series in Jonah. Yeah. By the way, all of these classes are are recorded, and anybody that requests can be happy to send the links to. But now we're starting a new study, which I, I already invited all of our listeners to join, just to email me at rabbi at rabbirichard.com if you would like to join our, our I call it our, our family, because it really has a beautiful fam- a feeling of a family that we come together on Sundays and, and study together. We're starting a new class in the book of Job. Eov, he's called in Hebrew. And the book of Job is an amazing study. It's going to be very intense, and it's going to be very um, heavy because it's, it's the source in the Bible of the, of the question of the meaning of human suffering. Human suffering, Hashem's presence in our lives, uh, reward and punishment, good and evil. And so there's nothing more universal than, than human suffering because everybody suffers. Yes. But the amazing thing is, Jim, when we're talking about like the universality of Torah, so there, there are different opinions about Job, many opinions actually about who he was and when he lived it's it's very divided. It's am- amazing um, discussions that take place in the Talmud that place him within a thousand years of different different points in history. Yeah. But then the main the, the main question about Job is, did he really exist? 
Yeah. Or is the whole book a metaphor that was written by Moshe? Is, did he exist? And according to the opinions that he existed, uh, universally, according to all of them, he definitely wasn't Jewish. He definitely was not Jewish. He was actually a, a, a member peripherally of Avraham's family. Mm-hmm. He was a member of, of Nachor's family. But he was a tzaddik. Unquestionably, he was one of the most righteous and perfect men who ever lived. And he was a Noahide. He was an absolute Noahide. That is to say, according to the opinion that, that it's not, a, a, you know, like a, a metaphor. So there's nothing better, you know, to, for uh, Noahides to study than something in Torah which is so completely applicable to, to the whole world. And I, I, my enjoyment of the book of Job is... is uh, all these scientific uh, principles that are discussed in it that are that are fascinating. I mean, he does get into this. You know, he talks about the foundations of the earth being laid, and uh, one of my my the, the phrase that used to cause me a lot of wondering. And I researched it years later when he's telling Job. He says, "You know, gird up your loins, and I'm going to ask you some questions. You know, I require some answers." And he says, "Can you bind the sweet influences of Pleiades?" And that used to just boggle my mind right. until I looked into it, and that opened up a whole. I mean, you could spend hours just researching that question right there. And you know, you, you know, if our regular listeners know, and many of our, uh, you know, the, the people in our audience know that uh, one of the uh, mainstream opinions in Judaism, and through even through the oral tradition, is that he was a an advisor in the court of Pharaoh. And he was, he was there the day that they decided, what do we do about these people who are thriving and who are, who are you know, kind of keep to themselves, yet they've influenced our arts and our sciences and, and everything about us. And they're, they're, one of their sons was our prime minister, Joseph. What do we do about them? They might take over the country or whatever. And so, you know, you've got Bilam, you have, you have Yitro, who was called Ruel, and you have, uh, you have Job. And... And I think one of the keys, this is my little own take on it, is that it really is, he really was this advisor, is that he's, it, Job speaks of wandering through a land full of uh, monuments, full of dead kings. And that to me sounds more like ancient Egypt than anything. But that's my own opinion, and I, I kind of fall in, in that particular path. But... So, so speaking about this whole concept of, of the universality of Torah and the work of Vendel and bringing the message of Torah to so many people that were able to uh, extricate themselves from their uh, former mistaken faith and, and all, all of this kind of thing. And then you're getting into the whole idea about, you know, there's, there's the seven and then there's the tributaries and then there's the whole idea. And, and I'm saying... There's so much of Torah that is universal. There's so much of Torah that, should, that can be embraced by all people. And the basic principles are, you know, completely the foundations of humanity, really. So I, the example that comes to mind is something also along the lines of what we're discussing and, and, and the title, The Door of Hope, yeah. and the whole idea can, of... Can I of, say something before we, we kind of put a... Uh, the one thing I... I almost forgot to say was, you know, the especially right now, what's going on, at least in this country, and it, it seems like other Western countries right now, the, the all seven laws are important, but one that people often don't realize is to set up courts of justice. And that is that God placed the, the court system with humanity. 
And Judaism is not seeking to replace the government of the U.S. or of the U.K. God is telling us through the seven laws that each nation must set up their own court system because their laws will be unique to their to the way that people live and thrive in that country, their, their economic system or whatever. And, and today we really need to, we in this country, we need to go back to all seven laws, uh, which used to be observed in this country. And people say that do we need to set up, you know, Noahide courts by themselves? No, our country is supposed to have a court system that that uh, looks to the, the and, and by the way, Many of them still are. It's, it's still against the law in this country to murder, to commit sexual depravity. Well, uh, anyway, uh, we won't go there. Um, the the, it's, the uh, you know cruelty to animals is still against the law. Theft and and um, am I leaving anything out? I didn't count them on my fingers as usual. Oh well. Uh, yeah, belief in God. Yeah, I was going to say belief in God and also blasphemy. Uh, you know, Wait, is belief in God illegal or illegal in America? Well, I, I'm beginning to wonder these days, but but uh, let's hope we don't go down that path because don't get me started. But um, uh, the foundation of this country was 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 founded. Uh, everything in this country was founded on a belief in the Creator, and it did not di- it did not dictate a religion. It just said belief in God is what is what is. Uh, driving this uh, creation of this country, you know, uh, under, under one God. I mean, that's what we go back to. So anyway, and so and so, I, I want to talk about this. I, I want to talk about the hope of mankind, uh, which is Hashem, and which is these beliefs. Uh, these beliefs again, and that's the universality of Torah. That's what it means. That's what that's what connects the Jews and the Noahides. It's all through Hashem's Torah. So one of the principles, before, before I really get into what I want to talk about, one of, the, one of the major principles of Torah, the more we study, the more we see this everywhere, is that the world was created for man. Amen. Man is the center of the universe. That's why, that's why man was created last. You know? That, you know, I always talk about the fact that Hashem created man on Friday, right before Shabbat, and he brought him into a world that was like absolutely beautiful. And he said, "This is what I made for you, and you are the you are the maestro of everything of all creation. You are I'm giving you the keys. You are you bring together everything. You are the center of creation and the and the masterpiece of creation." He didn't uh, do too well with it. That's that's our job now. But the, but the fact is, you know, that man is at the center of creation. And you know that there are so many people today, scientists and different a- academics, that talk about, you know, man becoming obsolete, and that man and that maybe man is uh, the best thing for the world would be for you know for life on earth to be if man would cease to exist. There are people that have uh, made careers of that whole academic position. I just saw something pretty amazing. Um, there was a, a, some sort of a conference or a, a panel uh, at, the, at the UN, um, and the panel was a panel of AI-enabled humanoid robots. Did you read about this? I missed that it one. It took place last, last week in the UN while you were having your conference about Vendel's memory and about bringing Hashem to the world, real human beings, and becoming better human beings. There was a panel of AI-enabled humanoid robots in Geneva. And they told a United Nations summit on Friday, it was Friday, that they could eventually run the world better than humans. 
Just hear me out. I'll read you this article. Okay. <laughs> but the social robot said that they felt humans should proceed with caution when embracing the rapidly developing potential of artificial intelligence. And they admitted that they cannot yet get a proper grip on human emotions. So all of these, the most advanced humanoid ro robots in the world were at this UN's two-day AI for good, it was called, AI for good, <laughs> global summit in Geneva. There were, there were some 3,000 experts there. And these um, robots gave a press conference. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, I know you and I have discussed this extensively, how we feel about AI and the AI rabbi and all of this. So um, they admitted that they cannot yet get a proper grip on human emotions. And, and they gave this press conference. So it says, they were assembled for what was billed as the world's first press conference with a, with a packed panel of AI-enabled humanoid social robots. What a silent tension, one robot said before the press conference began, <laughs> reading the room. So the robot looks out and sees everybody's a little bit nervous. So the robot says, what a silent tension. So asked about whether they might make better leaders, given humans' capacity to make errors, Sophia, who is a particular robot developed by Hanson Robotics, was clear. We can achieve great things, she said. So... Um, she said, humanoid robots have the potential to lead with a greater level of efficiency and effectiveness than human leaders. We don't have the same biases or emotions that can sometimes cloud decision-making and can process large amounts of data quickly in order to make the best decisions. AI can provide unbiased data while humans can provide the emotional intelligence and creativity to make the best decisions. Together, we can achieve great things. This stuff is so crazy, Jim, because it's... it's uh, and I know that other, others are already warning about it going too far. And I know that some people think like, why are we making a big deal about it? It's great. It's so convenient and it can answer so many questions. But I just think that this kind of thing that we're reading about now, there are certain lines that are being blurred. Yeah. And one of the things that, that's, that's being blurred, you know, the more these things are, are praised and appreciated for their, their capacity for greatness, the, the more the greatness of man is somehow diminishing. Yeah. And there's no question about it that this is a test like everything else that Hashem provides and does and allows us to progress with. And the greatest things in the world can also be un our undoing at the same time that they can be a blessing. You know, everything has that, has that dual nature in, in this world. That's how the world is created. But this one idea that I'm trying to stress of the, of the centrality and the preeminence of a human being as being the, the centerpiece and, and the reason for creation is absolutely the holiest idea of Torah, that man has free will, that man is... Um, a part of Hashem, really. And that's what it all boils down to, that these things are not, are not a part of Hashem, this artificial intelligence, but that man has a, a holy soul, which is literally a light from Hashem, that we are, like I like to say, beings of light, trapped in a, in, in a physical, material body, and that's why we're so confused. Mm -hmm. But the whole goal of our life is to, is to perfect this soul that we have as best as possible before it returns to Hashem. Yeah. Well, the, the thing that I, I think the people, and, and I'm not opposed to technology because especially when it is in the, we, we use it as a tool. And, and I think that, I think it really the, you know, everything is in the Torah 
and even the Torah anticipated this coming. And I think we're going to see in the coming weeks as, as we study Devarim, which to me is one of one of the, the parts of the Torah that really emphasizes in several places that, uh, they, that human teachers will never be replaced uh, because there is, there is a, an intuitive process that goes on in the interaction between a teacher and the pupil. And in and, and Devarim, in the book of Deuteronomy, this is emphasized uh, over and over again. And that's what I, I read. A, I recently read an interview with a rabbi, and, and he was asked, uh, you know, what his, uh, several questions about what his opinion was. And he said that, uh, they, they even asked him, I can't remember who did the interview. They said, well, can, can, a, uh, can a, a, a person use a AI to fulfill a, a mitzvah, and and up until that point he was open to, you know, letting AI carry out tools or or affect um, work in a, in an efficient manner, and he said, well, that's impossible. Of course, because it's impossible. It's there's impossible. no kavanah. There's no. There's no. There's no. There's no heart. There's no yeah. soul. There's nothing. It's because, not a person. And, yeah, and exactly because here's the thing. Uh, when you talk about things like uh, like love, or or hate, or any any emotion or anything, you know, you can't quantify you cannot quantify those things because that's what computers are all about. They're all about literally quantifying something, but you cannot measure someone someone's love. You can't weigh it. It has no weight to it. It can't be measured with a rule. It is so. It love is so real. Yet you cannot. But Jim, you know, besides all the, all your philosophy, yeah. they're not people. They're, no, well, they're well, robots. Yeah. Uh, obviously, they're not so, people so because people listen, people are the only ones capable of doing these things. That's what I'm saying. This it's is not, why and it's not about being against technology. Technology yeah. is not only is technology is a wonderful thing. Yeah, and we wouldn't we? You know, it's changed our lives for the good. Mm-hmm. But there's also a clear tradition that our sages maintain that the generations prior to the coming of the Mashiach are going to be characterized by tremendous advances in technology. So this right. is all right on course. This mm-hmm. is it's it's something that has the potential to be godly. It is something that is absolutely uh, a um, uh, the right thing at the right time that Hashem is 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 giving to the world. At the same time, our sages also teach that the generation in which Mashiach comes in is going to be so technologically advanced, and this is such an, a chilling and eerie description, right? Mm-hmm. That generation will be so technologically advanced, and these are the words of our sages from like 2,000 years ago, that it will be capable of bringing about its own destruction. Yeah, of course. Okay, Yeah. so th- th- so that is that is absolutely amazing. So it's not a, 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 about you know, being against technology, it's about understanding that everything is, you know, can be used for or against good. And uh, first of all, it's not accurate, the statement, because they're, they're, whatever they are and whatever they, they do, whatever they're programmed to is programmed by people. So to say that they're not going to be biased is absolutely not true. It's, it's really a lie because what we've already experienced with, with the chatbots and all of these AI platforms is that they're woke and they have they have their agendas, mm-hmm. and this is one of my main my main objections to to it is that the agendas of the people that are programming them are slowly seeping into every strata of society through all of these kind of devices. Mm-hmm. So they certainly are biased. Oh, of course, yeah. But they're not they're not people. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say this is. I mean, we're still working to this towards the same point, and that is is that um, the. Um, 
the technology, I mean, it's like the guy, by, it's like the wizard behind the curtain, you know, and the idea is, is that is that people there there can be who people who completely give in to AI are are it's a kind of idolatry in a way, and it will be used the way these idols were used in ancient time, where they were where the priest of these other uh, belief systems would speak through them in a kind of right, trickery. Exactly. That's what you mean. It's like it's like the holographic image of the head of Oz. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, so that's the thing is that is that um, you know in the in, when we were growing up in the in the old days, you know, fifties and the sixties, there were things like book reports that you actually had to go to the library and check out a book and read the book, mm -hmm. and and everything that we did, everything that, that the way that we grew up, and even our kids, the way that it was all it was all about um, self improvement, about about. Uh, learning how to think, not just about uh, amassing knowledge, but about developing skills, a, a skill set for how to be able to navigate through all of the different situations in this world, how to be able to make a living, how to be able to understand one thing from another, how to be able to, to build something to a logical progression. And all that is passe now. It's, not, it's just not even necessary. So yeah. ultimately, I, thi I think that at the core of all of this rot, really, which is what AI really is, is that it's... It's an undermining of this, of the, of the sanctity of of humanity and of the the special divine spark of humanity. Yeah, and God made us. God, the way we were formed, uh, the way our brains work, is that you know, even our brain. You know, in in, in the the uh, uh, the health realm, you know, they say about your muscles and your your body. If you don't use it, you'll lose it. If you don't keep keep your muscles in shape. You know they become weak and useless. The brain is just like that, you know. And I'm a I'm a I'm living testimony to the. I grew up in a world where they introduced calculators for everybody, and calculators really in school did so much damage to the way that we to to being able to do math. I mean, I know people now who can't do math without a computer without a a calculator, and of course your calculator is now on your wrist. So, or you know, or or your 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 iPad or something, but there was this very curious thing, and it's, it's I I I'm not lending authority to the book, but I read I, years ago I read the book of Enoch, and and uh, one of the most it it talks about the 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 watchers who turned out to be the fallen angels, so to speak, and it 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 speaks to the the gifts are not the gifts, the things that it taught mankind that were wrong. And one of the things that was that was considered not good for mankind was to teach mankind how to write. And and I, I, the first time I read that, I thought it was really curious. But I thought, what what? Of course, you know, the Torah is written, thank God, because we we are a people who need to to read and to read something that is tangibly written in front of us. That does not, by any means, disassociate the value of the oral Torah. But the idea is, is that is that we might have originally all you know. You have people who have these remarkable photographic memories, you know, where they they don't even all they have to do is see something the first time, and they know it. I think that we all had that capacity. We all had that gift. Now it's just sort of like pops up, you know. But the people before the flood were a people who who literally. Uh, used all of the of the the 
brain, the, the mental gifts that God gave them. And uh, the problem is they use them for the wrong reason. But they were they were brilliant people. That's why they were that's where the gods of mythology come from, are the people who lived before the flood. And they were people, but they, they were worshipped as gods after the flood because of their mental and, and physical prowess that God had imbued them with. And um, anyway, I could go on for. So I wanted to share something because um, we were talking about uni the universal values of Torah. Uh, we were talking about uh, the relationship between Israel and the nations and finding ourselves in Torah as we always talk about in Torah for everyone. And then I mentioned this concept of the the sacrosanct centrality of humanity in, in creation and the things that apply to all of us. You know that in the in the Siddur of Israel, in the prayer book, I know you've got one, mm -hmm. you know that in the in the prayer book at the end of the morning service there's a listing of the, what we call the 13 principles of faith. Amen. And the third and some people actually recite it as part of the as part of their morning routine, you know, after the morning prayers. And um, I don't know if everybody looks at it, what they are exactly, what these 13 points are, but it's very, very beautiful and, and um, encouraging. I think it's something that really gives hope to humanity, you know? And, uh, and also looking at these 13 statements, I think that they're absolutely um, universal in terms of their importance for both Jews and non-Jews. So what are they, these 13 principles of faith, you know? Sometimes they're called the Rambam's 13 principles yeah. of faith. The first one is, and the language, you know, is anima amin be'emunashalema. I believe with perfect faith, right, yes. these statements. I believe with perfect faith. The first one is that the Creator, blessed be His name, runs the world and created all, all the living things and that He alone made and continues to make and will continue to make and renew all of creation. We could stop here and talk for 2,000 years about that <laughs> statement, yeah. that, there's on, that there's only the Creator, that He alone runs the world, that He alone continues the process of creation all the time. This is, this is again, is like such a major principle in Torah thought that God did not just once upon a time create the world and walk away, but that every single moment, in fact, that's, again, one of the secrets of the name of four letters of Yudke Vavke is that Hashem is constantly bringing forth into creation, into reality, everything, all of existence at every moment. Yeah. So that's the first principle of faith, that I believe with perfect faith that there is a creator and that he continues to create everything constantly. The second principle, I believe with perfect faith that the creator, blessed be his name, is Yachid, is one, but it's more than one, is singular, is a, is a complete unity. And there is no unity like him at all under any circumstances. There is, in other words, there is nothing comparable to his unity and that he alone is our God. He was, he is, and he will be. Again, haya hove vihiya. The this forms is, of, of that, that name. This is what Einstein so, so was looking the, for. He was looking for the unified field theory. Exactly, Th this exactly. Is it. And, I, and uh, getting back to quantum physics, which we never get far <laughs> from, so much of, of those expressions and principles are wrapped up in the deepest fundamental principles of, of Torah. But this is the second basic point of faith for a believing person, is that Hashem's unity is so completely 
unique that nothing can be compared to it in the world. It's it's not just like oh that he's he's not three, he's not two. There's only one. No, it's so much more than that. It is so all encompassing. And that and then the older that we get and the more that we learn, the, the deeper that we go into it, the more that we understand that the point is that there isn't anything else. That's the secret of his unity. That it is that that he is. Reality. You know, Sir Isaac Newton uh, had a friend that he wrote to often, and there's a book that just was recently published. I say recently, it's been within the last few years, and it's the whole collection of letters between him and a, a, a fellow that he trusted very much. I can't remember the gentleman's name. And to to the outside world, and we know of of uh, Newton's love of the writings of the, of the Rambam. We know that now. And we know that he loved studying the the, principle, uh, the principles of the Mishkan. Well, to the outside world, he was he was this good Christian guy who believed in in what was being taught in his day. But he wrote this friend of his that he said, "I find the idea of a Trinity abhorrent." But he had to say wow. it to him in in a letter to a friend that he trusted he could say that to. Wow. He could not speak that openly that, in, in England of his day. So, but wow. I, I love that because we're talking about, you know, this is, this is the, you know, true science is, is right there in the Torah constantly. It's, it's, uh, and this idea of the unity of Hashem and of that unique unity is, is basically, like you said, the unifying factor. It's the reality of the universe. Amen. The third principle, I believe with perfect faith that the creator has no body. And nothing pertaining to the material body affects him whatsoever, and that there is absolutely no image. I'm just translating from, I don't have this in English, I'm looking at a, a list in Hebrew, and that there is no, um, compa- there's no um, imagery whatsoever associated with him. Mm-hmm. That there is, there is no material um, rep- representation whatsoever, whatsoever. And of course, again, in Devarim and Deuteronomy, all of the warnings that Moshe reminded the people that you heard Hashem's voice and you saw absolutely nothing. Exactly. And that there was no image. And even even uh, we saw in the, in the previous Torah parshas, you know, even Bilam could not even, you know, he said he, he was, he, he, the blessings that came out of his mouth, he, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. So, so, so far in everything that I've said, the first three principles, do you deny that they're completely universal? They're completely universal. This is the bedrock of a Noahide's commandment not to commit idolatry and not to blaspheme Hashem amen. Uh, bespeaks the foreknowledge that he has to have of what Hashem is, mm-hmm. that he's complete, perfect unity, that he's the utter, constant creator, and that he, and that he has no physical form whatsoever. Yeah. And I think, Rabbi, what you're showing, showing us is, is the fact that, uh, you know, uh, there, there's nothing against the Noahide if they want to. They could even, they could make these part of their morning prayer. They're not required of to. Of course. But it, it, you, just reciting them, you, it imbues you with a, with a kind of humility and awe, and, and it really prepares you for the day. To go into there, the, Jim, there is so much of the Siddur that can be adapted yeah. for the Noahide, and, and of course now in our time there have been there are several Noahide Siddurim that have been penned, um, some by Rabbi, some some by Noahides, and some by a collaboration of both. But in my personal opinion, as I've always taught that that the Siddur of Israel, as is basically, can be used by Noahides as well. Sure. 
The fourth principle, I believe with perfect faith that the creator, blessed be his name, is the first and the last. Okay, so that's also a very loaded statement. Mm-hmm. It's, he is the first and the last. Number five, I believe with perfect faith that the creator, blessed be his name, to him alone is it, is it proper to pray, and there is none other to whom it is proper to pray. Amen. That means that there is no intermediary, there is no agency, there is no go-between, there is no relic or um, any sort of uh, talisman or any sort of good luck charm or anything whatsoever that one should address or focus other than the Creator Himself, which again, it's not so easy for a, 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 a mind that isn't able to deal with the fact that the Creator has no beginning and no end and no physical form. And so it's difficult to get that headspace. And that's why the sages teach about concentrating on His name and concentrating on His attributes and understanding that we are facing Him and speaking to Him even if, uh, you know, we, that's a hard thing to, for us to understand. But, but when, at, in the time that we have with Hashem to, to, to talk to Hashem, it's like we're the only person in the world and He's completely focused on us. Yeah. And, and Rabbi, you know, we've been talking a, a lot. Uh, we've been banding about a very important word lately a lot, and that's purity. And, and, and as we read, as you read these, this is, this is something that, that uh, really, especially when you talked about the, the principle that talks about how we pray. And this is, this is the hard thing to come to, to practice when you've come out of a religion, when you're visualizing, you know, some white-bearded guy <laughs> you real real prayer the the purity of uh, uh, a purity uh, uh, a prayer that's that's uh that is uh shot through with with purity is is a prayer that doesn't visualize or try to embody uh any, any kind of physical being and and that's that's how we're supposed to worship and that's how we're supposed to pray without these things without these trappings the next three principles which are um, six, seven, and eight. I'm sorry, yeah, six, seven, and eight. I'm going to say together because they're all connected. Right. So the sixth principle is, I believe with perfect faith that all of the words of the prophets are true. That's number six. Number seven is, I believe with perfect faith that the prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu, of Moses our master, Allah HaShalom, was true and that he is the head of all of the prophets to those uh, both those that preceded him and those that were after him and then the next principle number eight is i believe with perfect faith that the entire torah which is now in extant in our hands is that which was given over to moshe rabbeinu and so those three are connected in other words the 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 uh, preeminence of the position of moshe in Torah thought, as the as the giver of Torah, as the elucidator and illuminator of Torah, and that the entire Torah, meaning of course the written Torah and the oral Torah, is all comes from Moshe at Mount Sinai. And you know, Jim, when you start to study Talmud, there are so many details about how the mitzvot are to be observed under so many different circumstances, and the whole way that the Talmud works of the of the analysis of different situations of how best to fulfill Hashem's word. There are so many details that are between the lines of the verses in Scripture that are referred to as laws which were given over by Hashem to Moshe at Mount Sinai. That all the time that Moshe was 
on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, God was literally teaching him the entire breadth of wisdom of, of Torah observance. Right. So, the, so the, these, now, I'll tell you how these principles also are very, very applicable to Noahides. Because, for example, in the pledge that so many of our listeners have taken, you know, there's a, there's a concept of a Noahide actually accepting upon himself the, the yoke of heaven, accepting upon himself the, the Noahide covenant. Again, the difference between a person who's just, you know, considered to be a descendant of Noah and one who is considered to be a righteous person who is one who, who declares that they want to uphold Hashem's will. So, so in that statement, he's basically saying that he recognizes that the, the Sheva mitzvot were given through Moshe Rabbeinu. Right. And that's such, such an unbelievable thing also because, you know, you have this phenomena sometimes of people that are coming out of Christianity that are, that are expressing appreciation for the Torah, but they draw the line and they say, but, you know, not the rabbinic thing. You know, they have this thing, you know, <laughs> yeah. about, about, you know I, this phrase is very irksome, rabbinic Judaism, they know that as if, as if the rabbis are making something up and they're adding something, which is the opposite of what we're talking about, that everything comes from Moshe. But the irony is that this everything that we're talking about, which is the, the covenant that Hashem made, through, from Adam, through Noah, with all of the, the um, manifestations of, of the mitzvot, was all revealed and clarified by Moshe himself. And it, so yeah. it's, it's considered to be part of the Torah of Moses. Yeah. And, you can, and you can, I don't have it in front of me, but I have, I have uh, uh, a couple of books that you can find this in. I have it in my library. You can actually chart the, the chain of transmission of that oral Torah and and everything from Sinai, from Moshe to Joshua, all the way to many of the the sages that bring us up to today, and it, it's continued on. And right. the the idea, I, I always I always think of because I came out of a of a, a youth that was uh, I, I love science fiction. I always think of four, Fahrenheit four fifty one, the Ray Bradbury story in which. Um, you know, they they were burning books, so they had people hiding out in the woods, and they would they all took on a book, and they they recited it, and and in a way, this is what this is in a much higher level. This is what has been done through the sages: is they they know Torah <clears throat> by heart, that that they can they can repeat it. You know, from it's not like the telephone game where. You know, in school, they, they, you, you would show how gossip works because it's not gossip. It is this holy word that is, uh, that is remembered transmitted. and transmitted word for word along with the written Torah from Sinai. This is, this is the whole idea of in the particular historical period when the oral Torah started to be committed to writing, even though it's, and it's still called the oral Torah because its nature is that it's supposed to be told or because it, yeah. it encourages questioning, it encourages exactly. a, a student to ask his, his teacher, you know, the meaning of something. But it was like, everybody knows the story of Rabbi Akiva and all of the great sages that were being systematically killed, executed by the Romans because they were teaching Torah. And so because it was feared that it would be forgotten because the wise men were being assassinated, it was given over to write down. Yeah. But yeah, the whole nature of it is to be given over orally. Yeah. The next one is very important also for Noahides. I believe with perfect faith that this Torah will not be changed and that there will not be another Torah given by Hashem. That the one that was given at Mount Sinai in its entirety is the Torah for all time. Yeah. Number 10. 
I believe with perfect faith that the Creator, blessed be His name, knows all of the deeds and thoughts of every person. Number 11, I believe with perfect faith that the Creator, blessed be His name, rewards those who keep His commandments and punishes those who transgress His commandments. Right. I know that's not politically correct to say, but yeah, there is a, a, a karma in, into the universe, yeah. and there is a right and a wrong, and Hashem definitely rewards, whether in this world or, the, or another world, is another question altogether, but and an important question. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that the minute that you eat from the tree of knowledge that you're going to die, even though Hashem said, on that day you will die. The question is, in which world? What does it mean exactly? But yeah. yes, everything works according to our desire to bring good into the world or our ignoring that. You know, they, they, what is it, Tehillim and, and Proverbs? Or that's, that's Psalms, or Mishle and Proverbs. Uh, people wonder, why do the wicked prosper? And the, the, they, they sometimes prosper because God is fair. Because, because I always think about the story of Nebuchadnezzar, you know, who was not one of the best people in the world. But even when he was a... a uh, uh, when he was in the, the Assyrian court, that's how he started his career. He was an officer in the Assyrian court. And when the representatives would come from Yerushalayim to the court, he would, uh, he would show them a tremendous respect for, for the, uh, the kings of Judah and all, and, and because he respected their wisdom and their knowledge. And he would take two steps back. And, and so literally he became the head of gold and and this was his reward for for showing right. respect for the the uh, the belief system of the, the Jewish people, and I, I think even uh, the first time I even saw this and I was amazed at it was uh, um, the uh, the Italian sage the Ramkal uh, Chaim Luzzato. He speaks in, in which his work I recommend any, anybody the way of God. Hashem. He speaks very clearly on the idea of how how fair God is to everyone. And I think that we need to read that and understand that so we will trust in Hashem and, and know that He doesn't play favorites ever, you know. Amen. Number, number uh, 12 is, I believe, with perfect faith. This is the most famous statement. It's been set to music, and everybody knows this one, I believe, with perfect faith, in the coming of the Mashiach. Mm -hmm. And even though he tarries, I will wait I wait for him each day that he should arrive. It's a positive commandment for a person to believe that Messiah can come at any time. Yeah. And the last principle is, I believe, with perfect faith, that there will be a resurrection of the dead at the time that Hashem wills it. And from that time on, his... His um, honor will be will be exalted forever. Yeah, yeah, and I believe the resurrection is actually, uh, for me, it's found in several places in the Torah. But for me, the most uh, dramatic representation of the idea of, of resurrection is in the entire fashioning and and uh, erection of the Mishkan. I really believe that. And Amazing. maybe someday we can, we can talk about that, but isn't isn't there this remarkable thing that it's there's thirteen attributes? So when you when you say the word echad, 
um, the the way you uh, with the way you spell the word one in Hebrew, what's the gematria of the word echad? Thirteen. Thirteen. I, I love that. For the, the, that's the gematria for the word for one. So. I think it's pretty amazing. So I think these principles are so, are so beautiful. And like I say, universal. You brought up the idea of the door of hope and the whole concept of what Brendel was working towards and what we're working towards now and bringing the message of Torah to all people that people should not, again, feel alienated. They should not feel that they don't have a part in Torah. And I think that these principles really imbue humanity with the hope of mm-hmm. being close to Hashem. I want to tell you that that the reason, one of the reasons that was uh, one of Vendel's favorite uh, verses from the Tanakh is because it, it literally says, therefore I lay a door of hope in the valley of Achor. Right. And the reason that Vendel loved that is because the region that he was digging in for the Kalim, the vessels of the temple, is in what is when ancient times was called the valley of, uh, of Achor. Right. So beautiful. I think we're out of time, but I just wanted to make a public service announcement. You, you and I were discussing the possibility that um, maybe in the coming weeks, uh, Rabbi Dr. Bernie Kastner will come back on the show again. Sure. Um, I know that uh, a lot of people were very interested in the, some of the things that he had to share with us about the afterlife, about the soul, about the whole concept of uh, the synthesis that he created in psychology and Torah about um understanding uh, life after death experiences and the whole concept of uh, the immortality of the soul. So we're thinking of having him again, and we'd like to invite all of our viewers and listeners who might have a particular question. Um, maybe they, some of them have <coughs> purchased his books. Maybe some of them remember that show or want to go back to listen to it. He really discussed a lot about the journey of a soul and the nature of the soul and um, the concept of, uh, of um, reincarnation. So we want to invite our listeners to email us with any questions that they might have that he could address the next time that he's on. Yeah, I think it would be a great show. I'd I'd love to see that. So welcome home. I'm glad you had a great time at the conference. Thank you so much for sharing with us. And we bless all of our viewers and listeners with a wonderful week. Amen.